Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. Hope you're having a, a great day. If you're new today, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church, and uh, we just want to say to you, welcome. Hope you just feel really comfortable as we uh, gather here today. Well, it's December, which uh, means it's Christmas time, uh, but it also means that uh, for those of us who started last January reading through the Bible in the year, it means we're almost done. And, uh, and if that's you, I just want to say to you, congratulations uh, way to go for keep going. And, and uh, you know, we're just kind of in that home stretch. And I hope that you found uh, that Bible reading to be uh, just, just informative. And, but more than that, I hope you found it to be life-giving and sometimes challenging and just a valuable thing to do. And I want to encourage you, if you're a little bit behind, if you're like, I've been going, but I'm, I'm behind, just catch up. You can, you can catch up right now. If you're on track, we're in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the book of 1 John in the New Testament. And, um, and if you want to know, uh, today we should be on day number 337 out of 365. So just, just so you track along, I just want to encourage you, if you've come this far, don't stop now. Uh, we're going to make it. Okay. Well, today we're going to begin our Christmas series. And the Bible gives us uh, four accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, they're called Gospels. And two of those start with Jesus when he's an adult. They don't say anything about his birth. Uh, one, Matthew, or sorry, Mark and, and John both start when Jesus is in his ministry. But the other two, Luke and Matthew, they do tell the story of Jesus' birth. Luke tells what we would consider to be the traditional Christmas story. It begins with the angel appearing to Mary's cousin Elizabeth and telling her that she would have a son who would become John the Baptist. And then, and then coming to, Jesus, uh, to, to Mary and saying that she would have a son named Jesus. And it's about the shepherds and the angels and that kind of a story. It's beautiful. You should read it sometime this, uh, this Christmas season. But the other gospel, Matthew, begins in a very different way. It begins with a genealogy. In fact, if you've started out reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I'll bet you didn't take too long that your eyes began to glaze over because it's just this, this bunch of names, most of whom you aren't familiar with. In fact, let me read it for you. This is how Matthew 1 begins. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And he just goes on and on from there until he gets all the way through King David and all the way down to Jesus. And the question is, why? Why, Matthew, do you choose to begin your gospel with his long, long list of all of these names stretching from Jesus all the way back to Abraham? And the answer is because Matthew is writing his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, to Jewish readers. And every good Jewish person knew that the Messiah, the, the Savior, would come from the, from the, 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 the line of David. And so if Matthew can't establish that to begin with, then they're not really that interested. And so Matthew has to start out by just making sure that they know that Jesus is from the, from the line of King David. And so that's what he does. He begins outlining the, the, the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham all the way down through David until he gets to Jesus. But along the way, he does something really strange. Something just really unusual. 
in a genealogy that is almost entirely dominated by males. In fact, that's a natural thing because the, the, the line of kingship flowed from father to son. In the midst of this thing, four different times, he drops the name of these women. Four different women. And not only does he throw in their names, but he seems to pause along the way to give emphasis to some of the people in Jesus' genealogy that probably, if you're trying to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God, would not be great names to, to emphasize, which is, which is unusual because in Matthew's day, nobody did this. You see, in the ancient world, if you were a famous person, if you were a famous general or a senator or king or an emperor, you would actually hire historians to write your story, to write your history. But because you hired them, the expectation was that they would make you look good. So if you read some of the ancient biographies of some of those famous people, they're fascinating to read because there's these huge gaps in their story. They, they, when they write about them, they, you know, if they were successful in a military exploit, they, the, the writers would blow that up and tell all about it and how amazing it was and what they did and, and how brilliant they were. But if they had a military defeat or a failure, they would just skim over that. Or sometimes they would skip it altogether. And if they had children who became incredibly successful, they would blow that up. Look at what a great man. Look at how successful his children were. But if not, sometimes they wouldn't even mention that he had those particular children. See, that, that's the way that it was done in the ancient world. Which is what you would think that Matthew would then do when he wants to introduce people to Jesus, who he's going to tell is the Savior of the world, the, the Son of God. But in fact, he doesn't. In fact, he does the opposite. In the opening genealogy, in the, in the opening sort of list and words that he puts in his gospel, it's as if Matthew goes out of his way to highlight, you know, these people that would sort of cast sort of a bad shadow over Jesus' lineage. In fact, he mentions people that he doesn't even have to mention at all. So, for example, it would have been easy. Some would have said it would have been right certainly in the tradition of the day, not to mention any of the ladies at all. And yet he lists four ladies, three of whom weren't even Jewish. Three of whom would show that Jesus doesn't even come from a pure Jewish bloodline. Here's, here's the first one. He names her in verse 3. He says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now the story of Tamar is wild. In fact, I'm going to tell you it uh, just a little later today, and so I won't kind of get into the details now, but it is so kind of out there, it is so kind of creepy that I'm not actually going to give you all the details. I mean, if you want the unvarnished version, you just have to go and read it for yourself in Genesis chapter 38 later on today. But that, that's the first person that, that he names, this, this lady Tamar and this very creepy story that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But then he goes on to say this, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salome, and Salome the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab was not a Jewish lady at all. She was a Canaanite. But more than that, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Rahab has a label attached to her name, doesn't she? Right? I mean, if you know, it's Rahab the 
Rahab the, the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the sex trade worker, right? And Matthew makes sure to pause through this list and throw in her name as well. And then, and then he keeps going. And he says, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, now Ruth, that, that's a good story. Ruth, of course, is a Moabitess, which means that she is from a people that are sworn enemies of the people of Israel. But, but otherwise, that's a, that's a good story. And then he goes on to say this. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, if you're reading that as a, a, a good Jewish person who knows your history, you're like, okay, finally, Matthew, you, you made it. Like, this is the point right here. David, the king, the warrior king, the, the shepherd of God's people, the one who wrote brilliant and beautiful psalms of worship to God. David, the, the man after God's own heart. That's the, that's the one that we're trying to make a connection to. Good job, Matthew. You, you made it. A few bumps along the way, but, but, but you made it. But then look at, look, at, look at what Matthew says next. Here's, here's what he says. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Oh, Matthew, really? Really? Did you have to go and do that? David was the father of Solomon. And he doesn't even say by her name. He says by the wife of Uriah. And everyone knew who the wife of Uriah was. Her name was Bathsheba. And, and, and this, this was the big, ugly story in David's life, right? I mean, if, Dave, if Matthew was being a good historian, this would have been the, the one story of David's life that he should have ignored, that he should have just skimmed over or passed by altogether. Because it's a story of how David has an affair with the wife of one of his good friends, one of the best generals that he has. And then, and then when she gets pregnant by David, then David arranges for Uriah, his, his friend, this general that he's one of the best, to, to, to unknowingly bring orders for his own death to his boss, who then sees to it that he is killed in battle. I mean, it's like the worst moment in David's life. And does Matthew say, you know, when he gets this part, does he say, well, uh, Solomon was the, was, David was the father of Solomon? No, no, he says... David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Huh. You know, the question is this, Matthew, what's going on here? I mean, what are, you, what are you trying to do here? I mean, if you wanted to mention some women from the Old Testament, there was great ladies to choose from. There's Sarah and Rebecca and one of David's other wives, Abigail. I mean, they have amazing, beautiful, incredible stories. Why these Ladies, why these stories? I mean, why are you going out of your way to point out these very stories in this genealogy? And here's why. Because Matthew spent three years with Jesus. Matthew watches Jesus interacted with all kinds of different people as he, as he taught and as he healed people and as he did miracles and, and as Jesus went to the cross and suffered an agonizing death and died and then he met the, the risen Jesus. And, and in all of that, he knew that these shady characters, 
These people with all of their baggage and their sin and their embarrassing stories, they weren't periphery characters in the story of what God is doing. They, they were the point of the story. They, they were what the story is all about. The story that Matthew is about to tell us in his gospel is about these people and what God is going to do in their lives. You see, the reason that Jesus came into the world the reason that he became a baby and took on flesh and grew and lived among us and, and suffered and died and rose again was to deal with sin. To, to make a way for all of us with our baggage, with our brokenness, with the kind of stories that we wish that nobody ever knew about us. To make a way for us to come and to be right with God. And the story is going to tell in his gospel, is about grace and forgiveness and new life for everyone, regardless of their past, regardless of what's gone on in their lives. And Matthew, Matthew knows what he's talking about because Matthew had a label too, didn't he? I mean, think about the disciples. You know, Peter the fisherman, right? Simon the zealot. But what about Matthew? Matthew the, the tax collector, right? I mean, he had a label too. And, and you have to understand that, I mean, if people don't like paying taxes in this day, you, can, you, you can't begin to imagine what they thought about someone like Matthew. Uh, in those days, in Jesus' day, there was sort of two groups that were considered the lowest of the low. There was those who were labeled the sinners. They were kind of the usual suspects. But then there was another category, a, a special category for a special group of people that were at least as bad as the sinners, if not considered worse. And that was the tax collectors. The tax collectors were, were Jewish people who bought the right from the Roman occupiers to raise taxes to support the Roman occupiers. But in the process, they also took extra money from those, from, from the people, from their own people. They, they cheated them and defrauded them so that they themselves could get rich. And so they were deeply hated. They, they were an embarrassment to their family. They, they were not allowed in the synagogues. They, they were not uh, ceremonially clean enough to be able to enter into the temple. They, they had no other friends except for other tax collectors. And this is who Matthew was. And yet one day he's sitting there collecting taxes and Jesus, the sinless, perfect, right, righteous son of God himself, comes up to his booth along with his disciples. And rather than cursing him out and, and swearing at him, Jesus says to him, follow me. And Matthew must have been like, me? Jesus is like, yeah, you. Come, follow me. And you know, Matthew does, and, and, and probably more than any other of the disciples, he knows about baggage and sin and hard stories and about being on the periphery. And Jesus invites him right into the center, right, right into the life that he has, and he changes Matthew's life. And Matthew knows that the story he's about to tell is a gospel all about grace and forgiveness and love. And so as he begins to write the story, as he begins to write the genealogy of Jesus, you know, I can imagine with a, a sly grin on his face, with a, with a glint in his eyes, he comes to, to Judah. He's like, well, I can't, I can't help but mention Tamar. 
And when he comes to King David, I mean, he's like, but I can't but not remind him, remind my readers that he was, that Solomon was the, the son of the wife of Uriah. Because you see, this is what the story is all about. It's the point of the story. So beginning today and for the next couple of weeks, we want to look at a couple of these stories and see what they say about who God is and why Jesus came and what it means for you and for me. So let's go back to the first lady that I mentioned, the, the, this lady named Tamar. Uh, she's closely connected with Judah. So here's, here's again what Matthew writes. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. That's interesting. Right away, Matthew is starting a mess, right? Look, if I were to ask you to turn to the person beside you and, and tell them everything you knew about Judah and his brothers, there was 11 of them, my guess is it wouldn't take you very long to say everything that you knew about 10 of those brothers because there wasn't that much. But the 11th brother, the youngest one, or one of the youngest ones, was a man named Joseph. And when it comes to Joseph, we know a fair bit about him, right? I mean, he was, he was the, 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 the one who was beloved by his father, and he was the one who had the coat of many colors. And he was an amazing guy. In fact, there's more chapters devoted to Joseph and his story in the Old Testament than almost anyone else in the entire Old Testament. And because he was such an amazing guy and so loved by his father, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. And they planned to get rid of him. In fact, if you compare uh, the, the story of Judah with the story of Joseph, it makes you wonder this. God, why? Why would you choose to put your son, Jesus the Messiah, in the line of Judah instead of the line of Joseph? I mean, the, the story of Joseph is one of, of hope and integrity and sacrifice and forgiveness. And in the end, he literally, the Bible refers to him as a savior. The savior of Pharaoh and of, of the people of Egypt and of his own family. I mean, the parallels between Joseph and Jesus are just, there's so many of them. It seems like a no-brainer that this, of all of the sons of Jacob, this would be the natural one for the Messiah, the line of the Messiah to come out of. And yet God doesn't choose him. Instead, God picks Judah. Now, why? Because again, Judah is the point of the story. This is what the gospel is about. So let me tell you about Judah. Let me tell you a little bit about his story. His story is like a footnote compared to that of Joseph. And he gets like one little chapter and a couple extra verses basically about his life. Here's what we know about Judah. Judah and his brothers were hanging out in the, in, with, the, with the sheep when Joseph, uh, Jacob sent his son Joseph out to see them. And, and all the brothers decide that they're going to kill Joseph because they're jealous of him. But rather than killing him, they take him and they throw him in a well to begin with and they sit down for lunch. Which is kind of interesting that lunch is more important than killing their brother. Uh, but it is. And, and while they're sitting at lunch, Judah gets to thinking. He's like, look, if we kill this guy, we get nothing. But if we can sell him into slavery, well, then the slaves can work him to death and we get some money. And so he proposes that to his brothers. They think, brilliant idea. And so when a, a caravan of Ishmaelites come along on their way to Egypt, they take their brother out, tie him up, and literally sell their own brother 
into slavery into Egypt. And they take the money and they, they split it among themselves. And then they take his coat and they rip it up and they kill a goat and they put its blood all over the coat. And then in one of the biggest scams in the history of, of families, they bring it to their father and they present to him this, this coat that is clearly Joseph's coat, all torn up with blood on it and allow him to come to his own conclusion that his son was killed by a wild animal. And in that moment, they take on a secret that they are going to have to keep until they die. Meaning every year on Joseph's birthday, when his father and his mother grieve and mourn, every year at Passover, and it, or, and it, or not Passover, any, every year at, at whatever celebrations that they have, they're going to grieve and mourn. And Judah and his brothers are going to sit there and act as if they too are mourning when in fact they sold their brother into slavery. It's nasty stuff that Judah is involved in. And that's before you get to the story of Tamar. Now, now the next thing that it tells us is about Tamar. See, Judah ends up you know, getting married and he has three sons and the oldest son ends up marrying this lady named Tamar. But then the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 38 that that, that, that oldest son of Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord and so God killed him. Now, it doesn't say why, that's just a mystery to us, but it meant that Tamar was now a widow. And by the tradition of the day, that meant that she would need to be married to the next son that Judah had so that she could become part of his family and that he could care for her. But that son, I mean, that son was, was wicked too. I mean, the things that he did are shameful. And in the end, God killed him as well. Which meant that the only son that Judah had left was a, a son who was much younger, who was not ready to get married. And so he says to Tamar, look, you just stay as a widow. You dress like a widow. You just live like a widow until he's old enough to be age that you can marry him and then I'll marry him to you. Except for that he has no intention of doing that. He simply doesn't care about this woman and he ignores her and she watches as year after year this man gets older and older until he's well old enough to get married and clearly Judah does nothing about it. And so she decides that she's going to take things into her own hands. And so one day she dresses up as a prostitute and in those days, a prostitute would wear a veil over their face. And she went down to the city gate where Judah would have gone regularly to do business with the other guys that met there. She strikes up a conversation with him. And he doesn't even realize who he's talking to. It shows you how little he cares for her. And they agree uh, that she will provide him with the services that he is wanting. And they uh, go someplace that is dark enough that he doesn't realize who he is with. And when it's all done, uh, they had agreed that he would pay for her services with a goat, except for he doesn't have a goat. And so before he leaves, she says, well, what, what are you going to give as a proof that you will pay me? I mean, what, what would identify you and make sure you come back? Like, like a driver's license, of course. It's a little early for driver's license. So she, he gives her his, his signet ring, which is like his, his signature and, and his staff and says, keep these, I'll send the goat, you give them back. As soon as, she's gone, as he's gone, she takes off her clothes as a, as a prostitute and goes home. He, on the other hand, goes home, finds his servant, sends his servant with a goat, find the prostitute, give her the goat, get my stuff back. And the servant looks around. 
guests around. Everyone's like, there's no prostitute around here. He comes back and Judas says, look, we don't want everyone knowing about this. Just, just drop it. So that's what they do. But then three months later, three months later, someone comes, knocks on Judah's door and says, uh, got news for you. Tamar is pregnant by immoral means, literally by being a prostitute. And in this moment, Judah does what everyone who has a secret and is trying to be someone else does. He gets incredibly self-righteous. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met someone who is incredibly self-righteous. And then you find out a couple of years down the road that the thing that they were so self-righteous about was the very thing that they themselves were struggling with, that they were doing. I mean, they, they hammer away at it. They, they're so self-righteous. They hammer away at it. But it turns out that that's their, their own struggle. That's the very thing that they're dealing with. You see, you see that in people because it's, it's human nature. It's just, it's just one of these things that, that is the case. And some of the most self-righteous people that you will ever run into turn out to be people that actually have secrets that they're struggling with that they don't want anyone to know about. And so they, they cover it over with this self-righteousness. And so when Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, she demands that, he demands that Tamar must be burnt alive. Imagine that. Burnt alive. Which is really quite a reaction from a guy who, who sold his brother into slavery. From a guy who perpetrated an incredible lie to his own parents that has left them mourning for year after year. It's really something from a guy who... who you know, carries this secret in his heart and, and, then, and then who promised to care for Tamar but, but never does. Leaves her vulnerable and, and uh, doomed to a life of poverty and shame. It's really something from a guy who himself who went to a prostitute. And now, now he's so outraged that he says she must be burned alive. And on the day when it's supposed to happen, Tamar sends a messenger to her. To, to, to Judah and says, uh, the man who made me pregnant, these are his signet ring and his staff. And in that moment, Judah's like, whoa, whoa, guys, uh, no fire today. No, let's just call this thing off. Turns out that he's the father. He's, he's the one that is responsible for all of this stuff. And, and he says, he says, look, she's more righteous than I am because I didn't do what I was about to said I was going to do. And six months later, six months later, Tamar, out of this weird, creepy, strange story, gives birth to a son named Perez. And Perez is in the line and the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Hmm. You think, Matthew, you know, you should have buried that story. That's just creepy and weird and, and not the kind of history that you should remind people of when you're telling them about Jesus, the Messiah. Unless that's the point of the story. Unless that's who the gospel is for. 20 years later, 20 years later, there's a famine in the land and Jacob sends his sons 
including Judah, down to Egypt to see if he can get some food. And when they get there, who, guess who's in charge of the grain? It's Joseph. And they don't recognize their brother Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And he kind of he messes with them. He taunts them a little bit. He tests them. But then when he can't stand it anymore, he, he sends them out of the room and he reveals to them who he actually is. It's one of the most dramatic scenes in all of literature. And th those brothers realizing the trouble that they're in, they fall on the ground, prostrate before Joseph, you know, in, in total humble submission to him. And the question is this, you know, if, if the roles have been reversed, if, if Judah had been standing there and, and his brothers had been bowing before him, given the character that he has, how do you think he would have acted? But Joseph is there and he says to him, it's okay, guys. I mean, you can stand up. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to care for your families. I'm going to care for your flocks. In other words, I'll make sure that you are cared for in every way possible. And he says to him, you know, it seems to me that what you meant for harm to me, God intended for good. So that I might save many. So I might save our family. So that I might save Pharaoh. So I might save the, the nation of Egypt. I mean, that's, that's Joseph. And yet God says, I'm going to choose unrighteous Judah over righteous Joseph. And, Ma and Matthew underlines the point here. Why? Because on that day, when Judah is, is down before me, it's a picture of, of you and me. He was the picture of someone who deserved one thing and got something else. I mean, Judah finds out that God's grace is available to people who haven't even been looking for God's grace in their lives. Judah never confessed. He, he never broke when it came to his secret. He never apologizes. And yet at the pinnacle of this story, at the height of this whole thing, Joseph gives to Judah the opposite of what he deserves. He gives him forgiveness and grace and hope and life. And so often, in, in Judah's day, as well as in our day, people think that the, the way to be right with God or the way to curry favor with God is to, is to do enough good things. They, they think their relationship with God is based upon their righteousness, on, on what they've done. But, but that's never been the case. It's not, not the case now. It's, it's never been the case even back in the days of Judah because it's never been about being good enough. No, nor did God ever intend, nor did God ever intend for people to say, well, I, I can't be at peace with God because of my sins and my shame in my life. You know, people sometimes say, since I can't change my past, I will never be able to be in a right relationship with God. And that's simply not true. I mean, from the very beginning, from right here in the book of Genesis, God gives us this picture of what it means to experience mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because you see, God knows that self-righteousness can never make a person better. Promising to change, promising to, to work on it, to, to make it better, to, to be good enough so that you can be good enough to, you know, that, that does nothing about your past. 
It does nothing about your secrets or the brokenness you've created in other people's lives. Your only hope has everything to do with what has been done for you. You know, it's how it's always been with God. All throughout history, all throughout history, it has been God who has chosen the broken and the messed up and the people with a past and with secrets and with baggage and with hard stories and who have created all kinds of disappointments for the people around them. It's those people that, that, that when they have recognized it, they've always had access to God. But not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of what has been done for them. And in the New Testament, what would be done for them through Jesus? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that, that, that's our story. We're the point of the story. That God came into the world to extend grace to people who don't deserve it. That God's grace is available even to those who haven't sought his grace to this point. Either because of rebellion against him or simply because they didn't know any better. <clears throat> Here's the question. I mean, have you got a secret in your life? Stuff that you don't want anyone to know because it's too shameful. Stuff that maybe your spouse doesn't even know. Is there baggage? Is there, is there brokenness or shame that's eating you up on the inside? I mean, the kind of thing that you would never be able to forgive yourself for. Or you think, I can never have peace with God until I, until I fix it. Until I'm good enough to be good enough to be good with God. Here's the good news. What God offers is grace, no matter your story, no matter what your past is. And this is the place to start. In grace. Not, not with trying to fix everything. Not with trying to make it all right. Trying to be good enough. You've got to let go of that idea that says, I've got to be good enough so that, so that I can be right with God. Rather, you've got to begin with this in mind. It's, it's about what someone else has done for me. It's about what God has done for me. And when you accept that kind of grace in your life, then out of that grace flows the ability. The ability to, to forgive yourself. I mean, that kind of grace opens the doors for you to begin to mend fences with others and, and, and fix broken relationships. It's out of grace that the healing begins in our life. It's not, here's what I have to do in order to make it right. It's, here's what I receive from God that allows him to bring that kind of healing and that kind of wholeness into my life. That's not a new message. That's not something that just came with Jesus. It, it, I mean, all the way back to the time of Judah and even further back, this is the message of the Bible. But it is ultimate expression is found in Jesus. So today, the invitation is this, to start with grace. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I mean, whether you've been following for a long time and, and just struggling with sin and, and brokenness, or if you've never come to Jesus, the, the invitation today is to go back to grace, to rest in the grace of God, to understand how deeply he cares for you and he loves with you. And when you do that, then he, in his time, he's going to help you deal with all of that other stuff. But don't let sin separate you from God. Don't, don't let sin Keep you away from him. 
In an act of grace, God chooses Judah instead of Joseph. In fact, Judah becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Years later, Jacob is about to die and he calls his sons in. He's going to bless them. And when, J when Judah comes into his room where he is dying, he, he speaks to Judah hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before the nation of Israel even is a, a thing. And hundreds and hundreds of years before David becomes a king. And thousands of years before Jesus is born. And in that moment, he, he lays his hand upon Judah's head. The deceiver. The one who told him a lie about his son Joseph for 20 years. He lays his hand upon his head. And he says that out of him, out of his descendants will rise a king of whom all the other families of his brothers would bow down and worship. And eventually would come a Messiah who is Jesus the Christ. God is a God of grace. And this is the story of Christmas. This is a story of of hope is why we celebrate at Christmas the kind of hope that we have because of who God is and the life that he gives us. So I want to invite you, would you bow your heads with me? Would you pray? God, we come to you this day. And God, as we come into this Christmas season, we thank you that the Matthew didn't just, just kind of you know, whitewash everything and just make it look like Jesus just came from this perfect line of perfect people who all just did good things. Instead, he points out. He points out for us that, that Jesus not only came for sinners, but he came from sinners. But that he comes bringing grace, the kind of grace that God has always offered. And so God, for, for, for each of us, wherever we are, find ourselves, Lord, with the, with the secrets and the sins that we struggle with and, and the brokenness in our life and the baggage, God, we come to you again this Christmas season and we just say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you would work through us, even in our brokenness and our hardship and the, and the challenges in our life. God, thank you that you are faithful to us, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done for us. And so we give ourselves to you again. God, we say, please work in our lives, teach us, use us. And God, thank you again for your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. I hope you've been encouraged and strengthened. I hope that you live in this thing called grace that God has given us that so often we forget about. I want to send you off with these words from the Apostle Paul written to the church, written to us. Here's what he says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. May you live and walk in the grace of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.